A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The strange case of the missing writer. It was a media circus. It was just like she vanished into thin air. A priceless painting picked up for a steal. It's the kind of discovery that everybody dreams of making. And a shocking secret hidden in plain sight. She had betrayed him, and this was his act of revenge. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Occupying an old schoolhouse in Gloucester City, New Jersey, is Between the Covers Rare Books, a world-renowned shrine to the written word. This immense private anthology boasts over 100,000 works, including a rare first edition of The Great Gatsby and Irving Berlin's personal rhyming dictionary. But there's one text here penned by a seemingly unknown scribe that should not be judged by its cover. The dust jacket shows a beautiful young woman in a summer yellow dress, and she's looking at the viewer with this almost mournful expression of despair. As author Bill Peschel can attest, this supposed work of fiction may be rooted in fact. It is believed to be a clue to a real-life mystery that gripped the nation. How does this book help solve one of the strangest disappearances of all time? December 4th, 1926, Surrey, England. A policeman is summoned to the scene of an accident on a remote country road. Police found an abandoned car crashed into the bushes. The vehicle is abandoned. But after a thorough search, the investigator makes a surprising discovery. An expired driver's license inside revealed that it belonged to Agatha Christie. The 36-year-old Christie has crafted six novels and garnered praise as the world's preeminent mystery writer. The officer scours the area, but finds no trace of the author. It was just like she vanished into thin air. Concerned for Christie's safety, investigators rush to her home 
and are greeted by her secretary. She explains that the night before, Agatha got into a heated argument with her husband, Archie, and stormed off. Police request to speak to Mr. Christie, but learn he's out of town. Archie was spending the weekend with friends. Authorities track Archie Christie down to a town called Godalming. He professes no knowledge of his wife's whereabouts, and when pressed about the state of his marriage, he remains tight-lipped. Archie told them there was no problems with their marriage whatsoever. Yet those closest to the couple tell a different story. Archie was having an affair with a younger woman, Nancy Neal. It's also revealed that on the morning of the accident, Archie made a stunning declaration. Archie tells Agatha that he wants a divorce. Now, authorities are left with a sinking suspicion. This affair was a motive for murder. Archie had possibly killed her. Police place Archie under surveillance and launch a nationwide manhunt for his wife. The press seizes upon the event that seems ripped from the pages of the author's own novels. It was a media circus. Then, on December 14th, the bizarre plot takes a twist. A musician staying at an upscale resort in the town of Harrogate strikes up a conversation with a fellow guest. She identifies herself as Mrs. Teresa Neal, late from South Africa, coming to stay at the hotel to recover from the death of her daughter. But as the conversation unfolds, he recognizes that she bears a striking similarity to the woman whose picture is plastered on the front page of every newspaper. She looks a lot like Agatha Christie. The man alerts local police, and authorities spring into action. The police bring Archie up to the hotel to identify her. They sit in the lobby. Soon this elegant woman in a beautiful dress comes down, and he recognizes her immediately. It's Agatha. But there's just one problem. Agatha seems unmoved by Archie's presence. She doesn't really have any glint of recognition in her face. Archie was shocked. A concerned Archie whisks her away to their home. While the author recovers, rumors begin to swirl. Some surmise that the spectacle was a desperate plot to regain her husband's affections. The disappearing act, the use of Archie's mistress's last name, Neil, was all a cry of attention, a cry of pain. Days later, Archie makes a public statement concerning his wife's condition. She was examined by the house doctor and a specialist in nerve disorders. She was probably suffering from amnesia as a result of the auto accident. When she recovers, Agatha refuses to comment on the incident. Friends say that anyone who asked questions her about it, she would cut them off immediately. Then, in 1928, Agatha divorces her husband, reigniting interest in the story. There were too many questions raised that were never answered. It seems the truth will remain Christie's greatest mystery. But then, six years later, the author pens this novel, Unfinished Portrait, now archived at Between the Covers Rare Books. Published under the pseudonym Mary Westmacott, it tells of a woman struggling with the collapse of her marriage. After leaving home in desperation, the protagonist experiences a rare psychological condition. She was under so much stress that she suffered a nervous breakdown, putting her into a fugue state in which she could act perfectly normally but not remember anything. 
Many scholars speculate that the tome is an explanation of her bizarre, fugue-like behavior and disappearance. It seemed that Agatha had been overwhelmed by so much happening in her life that she couldn't even recognize herself anymore. Today, this copy of Unfinished Portrait remains on the shelves at Between the Covers Rare Books, a glimpse into the Queen of Crime's most personal mystery. Washington, D.C. In 1797, President George Washington designated a dozen acres of this capital city as a shipbuilding site. Today, this same parcel, dubbed the Washington Navy Yard, is home to an institution preserving military maritime history, the National Museum of the United States Navy. Its collection showcases such lethal artillery as a long tom cannon from the War of 1812, an 1898 Hotchkiss, and a World War I-era slide gun. But alongside this complex weaponry is a simple piece of paper. This artifact is in a frame that's two feet by three feet. It's buff in color with a gold seal in the left corner. According to curator Jennifer Marlin, the recipient of this certificate waged a heroic battle. This artifact tells the story of one man's epic struggle to succeed against all odds. To whom was this plaque awarded? And what extraordinary feat does it celebrate? It's January 1966 in the Atlantic Ocean, on board the USS Hoist. 35-year-old Carl Brashear is the first African-American to earn a place on the U.S. Navy's elite deep-sea diving squad. But the ambitious military man harbors an even bigger dream. His goal in life was to become a master diver. The highest dive qualification that you can receive in the United States Navy. At month's end, the diver and his colleagues are deployed to face an international crisis. Their mission is to locate a nuclear warhead that was lost after a U.S. military plane crashed off the coast of Spain. This bomb is lost in international waters in the middle of a Cold War. So we're in a race against the USSR. Whoever finds it first gets it. Desperate to recover the explosive, Navy divers begin working around the clock. For two months, the search comes up short. Then, 58 days after the warhead's disappearance, the team locates the weapon five miles offshore. Brashear stands on deck, supervising fellow crew as they reel in the two-ton warhead. Things are moving along quite well, but then disaster strikes. Under strain from the heavy bomb and the choppy seas, a lifting line snaps, breaking off a metal support beam. As the heavy pipe flies across the deck, Brashear instinctively pushes a colleague out of harm's way, only to place himself in it. The pipe crashed through his lower left leg, almost tearing the foot straight off. Navy corpsmen rushed the grievously injured diver to a hospital. They did not expect him to make it. Incredibly, Brashear survives. But over time, his body struggles to heal. The doctors told Brashear that his foot had acquired gangrene and he'd never be able to walk on it again. The diver is crushed by the prognosis, though it pales in comparison to the news he receives from the Navy. 
Due to the severity of his injury, he was going to be medically discharged. Not only would Brashear never complete his goal of master diver, he would never dive as part of the Navy again. But the driven Navy man isn't ready to admit defeat. So he refuses to sign his discharge papers. He had to find another way forward. What drastic measures will the diver take to keep his dreams afloat? And will he succeed? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's 1966. Dedicated Navy diver Carl Brashear dreams of attaining mastery in his field. But when he injures his leg in the line of duty, doctors conclude he'll never walk or dive again. So will this headstrong sailor find a way to fulfill his goal? Or is he all washed up? Brashear knows that if his leg doesn't heal properly, his dreams are dashed. So he makes a radical decision. He asked the doctors to amputate his leg above the problematic infection. He plans to dive again utilizing a prosthesis. It's a feat that's never been accomplished before. Surgeons urge Brashear to lower his expectations. The prosthetic limb would allow him to walk, but not to perform the rigorous physical feats that are necessary as a diver. It just wasn't going to happen. But Brashear never wavers. 
He undergoes amputation and is soon fitted with an artificial leg. Then, he embarks on a brutal regimen to regain his strength, whatever it takes. Brashear started training on his prosthetic limb, learning how to run, climbing with weights strapped to his back. He pushed himself harder than his doctors and trainers were suggesting. Then, after building strength on land, Brashear returns to the water and teaches himself to swim. Finally, after months of excruciating work, Brashear petitions the Navy to take the diving test. He had to convince the Navy he deserved to take the place of someone who had both legs. His superiors are skeptical, but agree to give him a chance. Over the next year, he undergoes a punishing litany of physical exams that would challenge the most able-bodied Navy man. And against all odds, he nails each one. The Navy is amazed with Brashear's ability. And in April of 1968, Brashear is returned to full active status. He becomes the first amputee to serve as a diver in the U.S. Navy. Then, just two years later, he accomplishes his dream. Brashear earns the rank of Master Diver and receives this certification, housed at the National Museum of the U.S. Navy. Only a few in the Navy ever achieve this high status. It forever celebrates the achievements of a man whose unyielding bravery made him a Master Diver in the Navy and a hero in life. Auguste Rodin, Claude Monet, and Paul Cezanne. These are just a few of the world-renowned visionaries whose works adorn the walls of the Baltimore Museum of Art. But there's one small painting in this vast collection that tells a sensational tale unlike any other. It's a five and a half by nine inch impressionistic landscape of a riverside view in a beautifully carved, ornate gold frame. According to curator Katie Rothkoff, this elegant, petite work tells an outsized tale of crime and deception. This painting was part of an incredible vanishing act with a faceless criminal. Who crafted this masterpiece? And how is it linked to one of the greatest scandals in art history? 2012. Alexandria, Virginia. Ann Craner is a fine arts specialist working at the Potomac Company Auction House. One day in July, she receives an unannounced visitor. In walks a middle-aged woman with a white plastic trash bag. The woman's name is Martha Fuqua. She reveals a small piece of art and explains that she acquired it at a flea market for a bargain price. She bought this painting in a box of artifacts for $7. Fuqua states that her mother, an artist herself, found some unusual details in the work and suggested she have it appraised. Craner immediately notes its beautiful composition. It's painted in pinks and greens and blues, and it's a water scene of the River Seine. But it's the name etched at the bottom of the frame that catches the expert's attention. The tag on the frame says Renoir. As Craner knows, Pierre-Auguste Renoir was a 19th century French Impressionist 
universally hailed as one of the greatest artists of all time. If this really is a Renoir, Fuqua may have stumbled upon the find of the century. If it sells at auction, it could go for a high of about $100,000. To authenticate the flea market find, Craner turns to a comprehensive catalog of Renoir's works. Inside, she encounters a familiar image. This painting is called On the Shore of the Seine. Then she discovers a stock number on the frame that indicates where it was originally purchased. In 1926, it was sold to a man named Herbert May at a French gallery that was known as one of Renoir's major dealers. Craner draws an exhilarating conclusion. That was an authentic Renoir. However, there is no record of what happened to the painting after it was purchased in 1926. Thrilled by the discovery, Craner's company announces the work will be put up for auction. Well, we have it estimated at 75000 to 100000 And the art world takes notice. There were headlines around the world. It's the kind of discovery that everybody dreams of making. But not everyone is willing to embrace the painting's future. A Washington Post reporter named Ian Shapira is determined to learn more about its mysterious past. He's trying to figure out where the painting has been for the past 60 years. Shapira looks into the background of the painting's original buyer, Herbert May. He discovers that May's wife, Sadie, had been a generous contributor to the Baltimore Museum of Art. Sadie May gave the museum more than 900 works of art. Shapira begins to wonder if the Mays gifted the Renoir and combs through the museum's archives. There, he uncovers something startling. He found the loan receipt that showed that Sadie May sent it to the Baltimore Museum of Art in 1937. Unaware the piece was once part of their collection, museum officials are floored by the news. When they dig into their loan records, they make another disturbing discovery. The painting had been stolen in 1951. We were absolutely shocked. Though the theft had been reported to police, it was never placed on an international registry of stolen artwork, and there are no clues regarding the identity of the perpetrator. The painting was so very small that somebody could have slipped it underneath a jacket and just walked out the door. In light of these revelations, the auction is called off, and the FBI is brought in to investigate. The FBI focuses their attention on the painting's new owner, Martha Fuqua, but she denies any knowledge of the theft. She said that she was born 11 years after the painting was stolen, so there was no way she could have stolen it. As far as she's concerned, she bought it, she paid for it, she owns it. Then the FBI gets a lead that calls Martha's story into question. The source is her brother, Matt. He doesn't believe that she bought it at a flea market. He says that he has seen the painting in his mother's house and it has been in the family for 50 or 60 years. Matt reveals that his mother is a former art teacher who wrote her thesis on Renoir. He suspects that decades ago, an admirer gave her the painting as a gift. And now he believes Martha is trying to surreptitiously cash in on a family heirloom. But the question remains, what mysterious figure stole this masterpiece? To put the controversy to rest, the FBI turns to the Fuqua's mother. But before they are able to question her, she passes away from cancer, 
leaving the events surrounding the theft an enduring mystery. There were so many different stories and so many different accounts. So ultimately, it is a mystery and may remain one for the rest of our lives. On January 10, 2014, a judge orders the Renoir painting be returned to its rightful owner, the Baltimore Museum of Art. We are thrilled to have it home. And today, this tiny masterpiece is back on display, a long-lost treasure that has finally returned home. Rochester, New York. Founded in 1817, this upstate factory town was an ideal setting for dozens of water-driven flour mills. Today, this industrious city is home to an unexpected institution, the Strong National Museum of Play. The world's largest collection of childhood amusements features a handmade Monopoly board, a 1918 carousel, and a massive assortment of antique dolls. But one object here is a far less conventional plaything. It's nine and a half inches tall. He is a little tough looking. And his most unique feature is that he has hooks where his hands would be. According to curator Christopher Bench, this action figure is modeled after an unusual character. He was once the subject of a stranger-than-fiction story that had a real-world Hollywood ending. Who was this superhero? And how did a high-stakes adventure propel him to international stardom? 1972, El Paso, Texas. 33-year-old J.J. Arms is a hard-charging private investigator with a sterling track record. But at first glance, he seems an unlikely detective. As a child, J.J. Arms had a tragic accident with dynamite. An explosion took his hands off. The fortuitously named Arms wields a pair of sophisticated pincers and has earned the moniker Detective Hook. J.J. Arms was the original Inspector Gadget, but he and his accessories were all real, and he solved real-world crimes. For years, J.J. Arms practices his remarkable detective work in relative obscurity. Then, in March 1972, he receives a call that transforms his career. Out of the blue, famous actor Marlon Brando phones J.J. Arms. His 13-year-old son, Christian, has been kidnapped. Desperate to discreetly locate his son, the actor asks the P.I. for help. There hasn't been any ransom demand yet. He could be killed. He could be harmed. This could be revenge of some kind. It's so much for a father to worry about. Arms immediately heads to the site where the boy was last seen, the home of his mother and Brando's ex-wife, Anna Kashfi. J.J. Arms decides to start interviewing the neighbors and heads across the street. He soon encounters a woman who shares intriguing information about the night the boy disappeared. She was aware of a big party. There were shady characters around. But what most concerned her was that a big van was parked in her driveway that evening. She explains that she copied down the van's license plate number, but failed to follow up with the police. Fearing the suspects may have fled to Mexico, Arms runs the plate number at the nearest border crossing. And sure enough, he learns that the vehicle entered Mexico a few days earlier. According to the border agent on duty, 
the passengers were heading for the coastal region of Baja. Baja, Mexico is a big peninsula. How are you going to find one van in a massive desert area bordered by ocean? Arms knows the only way to effectively search for the vehicle is by air. So the intrepid detective rents a helicopter and pilots it to the region. He's been searching fruitlessly up and down Baja. But on the morning of the fifth day, he finally spots a vehicle below. Arms lands the chopper and approaches the vehicle on foot. He checks the license plate. Oh my gosh, it matches. The kidnappers have got to be somewhere nearby. Arms soon discovers a dark, forbidding cave and slowly enters. If it was me, I'd be worried what I am stepping into. Is this some sort of trap? Who are these people? Wielding a gun, the detective enters the cave and discovers a sleepy band of bohemians. He finds a group of hippies who are absolutely perplexed at what this Captain Hook guy is doing in their cave and what's going on. After scanning the space, Arms spots the object of his pursuit, Christian Brando. The boy isn't in good condition. He looks sick. Then, seeking clarity, Arms confronts the unlikely captors. J.J. Arms asks the hippies, what are you up to? And they're equally perplexed from their side of things. They're no kidnappers. They've actually been paid $10,000 to take Christian Brando on an alternative vacation. It seems the money was provided by none other than Christian's mother, Anna Cashfee. With the ailing boy secured, Arms spirits him away to his helicopter. He flies to a California hospital, where Christian receives treatment for acute pneumonia and is joyfully reunited with his father. J.J. Arms could tell Marlon Brando, I found your son, I've saved him, I've saved his life. But the question remains... What drove the boy's mother to orchestrate this bizarre ordeal? She's been involved in a 13-year epic custody battle for her son. She arranged Christian's trip with the hippies in hopes that it would appear he'd been kidnapped and in turn paint her ex-husband as an unfit father. As a result of the ill-conceived plot, Marlon Brando is awarded sole custody of the boy in 1973. In the wake of the case... Detective Hook's star continues to rise. In short order, J.J. Arms becomes the private investigator of choice to such stars as John Lennon, Elvis Presley, and Elizabeth Taylor. He becomes so well-known that in 1978, the ideal toy company launches the J.J. Arms action figure. Today, at the strong National Museum of Play... This real-life superhero figure is an exciting tribute to a determined man who overcame tremendous obstacles to become the most recognizable private eye in the world. Weatherford, Oklahoma. This agricultural community is home to one of the nation's most impressive wind farms, with dozens of turbines reaching over 300 feet. Celebrating a different type of sky-high achievement, is the Stafford Air and Space Museum. Its collection includes one of the earliest mass-produced aircrafts, a supersonic Air Force training jet, and a replica of Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis. But one odd-looking contraption was designed for use at a much greater altitude. 
It is about the size of a college dorm room refrigerator. It is silver. It weighs about 166 pounds. According to curator Tanner Wheeler, this device was at the center of an ambitious experiment that descended into disaster. Nobody knew what would happen on this mission, and a lot of things went wrong. What is this piece of equipment? And what role did it play in one of the most horrifying episodes in the history of space exploration? 1966, Cape Canaveral, Florida. The space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union is in full swing. And in the spring, NASA completes development on a state-of-the-art instrument they believe will finally give them a critical edge. It's called the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit. The Astronaut Maneuvering Unit was basically a backpack with thrusters which resembled a jetpack. The unit is designed to freely propel an astronaut in space. NASA plans to deploy it in the upcoming manned mission, Gemini 9. The bulky unit will be attached to the exterior of the craft. An astronaut will then exit the vehicle to reach the device and test it. The man selected for the job is 32-year-old astronaut Gene Cernan. Gene Cernan had reached the rank of captain in the Navy and was a highly decorated officer. He was the perfect man for this job. Still, the mission is a daunting one. Cernan must subject himself to the extreme temperatures and body-crushing vacuum of space. During a spacewalk, the only thing separating an astronaut from the extreme conditions of space is his pressurized suit. If the suit were to fail, the astronaut would probably die. For months, Cernan practices operating this unit, now on display at the Stafford Air and Space Museum. And finally, preparations are complete. On June 3rd, Cernan and Gemini 9's commander, Thomas Stafford, strap into the two-man capsule and blast off. The vessel successfully reaches orbit, and on the mission's third day, Cernan prepares to test the AMU. He tethers himself to a cord that will keep him anchored to the capsule while monitoring his vital signs and providing him oxygen. Then he takes his first tentative steps into the void. But soon after, something strange happens. Cernan's suit becomes increasingly inflated. It seems the vacuum of space has caused it to expand, rendering the suit stiff as a board. He found that something as simple as bending his arm took extreme amounts of energy. Then he struggles to pull himself to the rear of the spacecraft as his breathing becomes frantic. It was absolutely terrifying for him that he could not maneuver himself as easily as he thought. When he finally reaches the AMU, he attempts to attach himself to the mobile unit. But his body is near total exhaustion. Inside the capsule, Thomas Stafford grows increasingly concerned. He notices that the spacewalker's heart rate is soaring to a dangerously high 180 beats per minute. Stafford was worried that Cernan could go into cardiac arrest. It was very clear that this exercise was not going as planned. Stafford orders Cernan to forego the AMU test and abort the mission. The disappointed astronaut detaches from the unit and makes his way back to the airlock. Little did Cernan know, his troubles had just begun. As the weary astronaut thrusts his feet back into the craft, he encounters a terrifying reality. With his spacesuit stiff and inflated, he can no longer fit through the hatch. And unless he can find a way back inside, 
Cernan will eventually succumb to the ravages of space. This was definitely a life-or-death situation. The men conclude that there is only one method to get Cernan back into the spacecraft. The only way that they could both return home safely is if they jammed Cernan into that airlock as hard as they could. It's a bold and risky move. If Cernan were to tear his suit, his suit would depressurize and he would die. Yet with no other option, Thomas Stafford attempts to pull Cernan back into the capsule. Cernan felt like his bones were breaking. At this point, he couldn't even breathe. He was beginning to see spots. Then, mustering all of his might, Stafford manages to yank Cernan into the spacecraft. The harrowing ordeal is finally over. The fact that they came out alive was an absolute miracle. On June 6th, their capsule re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. Officially, the mission failed to meet its objective of testing the AMU. But Cernan's fateful walk makes history in another way. Cernan became the first astronaut to orbit Earth outside of the spacecraft. In the aftermath, NASA designs a more flexible spacesuit. And in 1984, an updated version of the AMU is successfully deployed from the Space Shuttle Challenger. Today, this device in Weatherford, Oklahoma, stands as a reminder of the sheer willpower and strength of two brave men who narrowly averted a space tragedy. Located in northeastern Los Angeles, Highland Park is one of the oldest settled areas in Southern California. Once fraught with petty crime and gang violence, this neighborhood has experienced a renaissance, thanks in part to the vigilance of local law enforcement. And nowhere is the heritage of the boys in blue better displayed than at the nearby Los Angeles Police Museum. Among the items on display are an antique mugshot camera, a bullet-riddled squad car, and a pipe bomb built by the Symbionese Liberation Army. But tucked away in the archives is a small rectangular artifact that tells an explosive tale of murder and deception that rivals the impact of any homemade detonator. The artifact is a dark blue bound book, and then there's gold printing on it. It contains a typewritten entry with a handwritten notation at the end. According to Executive Director Glenn Martin, these passages represent the bookends of a nearly decade-long investigation into one of L.A.'s most bizarre crimes. It seems like a small entry, but it reveals you're not safe anywhere, not even in your own home. What notorious case is recorded in this ledger? August 22, 1922, Los Angeles. Police respond to reports of gunshots at the home of Fred and Dolly Osterreich. On the scene is one of the department's top men, Herman Klein. Klein is the chief of detectives for the LAPD. Inside, he encounters a grisly sight. On the floor is the body of Fred Osterreich, struck by gunfire in multiple places. Fred's wife, Dolly, however, is nowhere to be seen. But as Klein begins surveying the home, he notices something odd. He hears a knocking and determines that the knocking is coming from a closet. Klein pulls the door open to find Fred Osterreich's wife, Dolly. She's absolutely terrified. Through her tears, the hysterical widow recounts the horrifying events that led to her husband's brutal end. According to Dolly, she and her husband Fred arrived home and they were met by burglars. 
A struggle ensued between Fred and the burglars. Dolly tells Chief Klein that during the fight, one of the thieves shoved her into the closet and locked the door from the outside. That's when she heard gunshots. After taking down her statement, Klein conducts a thorough search of the Osterreich household. But as he inventories the residence, he's struck by one confounding detail. Her husband's diamond pocket watch is gone, but nothing else seems to be missing from the home. Back at headquarters, Herman Klein types up a report in this ledger, now housed in the archives of the Los Angeles Police Museum. But the chief is overwhelmed by a sneaking suspicion. Why would two burglars commit murder only to make off with one watch? The detective delves into the victim's past, searching for anyone who may have had a score to settle. In reality, there's no single enemy that emerges that Klein thinks would have done such a dastardly thing to Fred Osterreich. With no leads, the case drags on for seven years. And in 1929, Herman Klein retires. It seems all hope of finding Osterreich's killer is lost. But just a year later, police get an unexpected break. Klein's replacement, Captain P. Stevens, gets an unexpected tip from an informant. He tells him that he's got new information about the night that Fred Osterreich was shot. And what he tells detectives blows this case wide open. The informant tells the lead investigator on the case, Captain Stevens, that he's known Dolly for years, and there is more to Fred's murder than she is letting on. Stevens listens intently as the stranger lays out what he claims really happened on the night of August 22, 1922. Dolly and Fred began arguing, and by all descriptions, the argument got a little bit violent. Then a man suddenly appeared out of nowhere and rushed to Dolly's aid. But this intruder was no petty thief. In fact, he's well-known to Dolly, very well-known. He's her lover, Otto Sanhuber. And according to the informant, Sanhuber's concern for his sweetheart's safety was strong enough to trigger an extreme reaction. Otto drew a handgun. He fires his handgun at Fred. Fred collapses and falls to the floor, stone dead. With blood on their hands, the two panicked lovers quickly devised a plausible cover story. Dolly takes Fred's pocket watch. They make the house very much look like a struggle has occurred there. And to make Dolly seem like an innocent bystander, Otto locked her in the closet. But Stevens has one question. What was Otto doing in the house when Fred and Dolly came home that night? The answer is stunning. He wasn't just visiting. In fact, he lived in the house. The captain learns that for over a decade, Otto Sandhuber made his home in the Osterreich's attic a brazen plan hatched by Dolly to keep her bow close, but out of sight. Fred Osterreich had no idea that somebody else had taken up residence in his home. Astounded, the captain has one last inquiry. Detective Stevens is wondering, why are you telling me this? The informant reveals that after the murder, Otto and Dolly had parted ways. And for a time, he had been Dolly's boyfriend, but things had not ended well. She had betrayed him, and this was his act of revenge. Otto and Dolly are quickly apprehended. Sanhuber is put on trial, but it's too late to make a conviction. The statute of limitations for manslaughter had expired, so Otto is a free man. 
Then, Dolly's trial for conspiracy to commit murder is dismissed because of a hung jury. When the case comes to a close, Captain Stevens diligently updates Klein's entry in the police ledger. Today, this routine record and its handwritten update are housed at the Los Angeles Police Museum, a subtle reminder of one of the most shocking secrets in L.A. criminal history. From a hook-handed detective to the Madam of Mystery, a pilfered masterpiece to a master diver. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.